Hello everyone. Hello, let me know when the sound comes through. Welcome to this evening's Natter. Hello, hello. Ah, the, the birds are singing. It's been quite sunny today outside. Uh, oh, man. Uh, I hope everyone's well. Uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, Oh, I'm zoning out of life a bit at the, at the moment. That's work. <laughs> Don't overwork yourselves, folks. You burn out and it's not good for you. Um, <laughs> Hello, out of curiosity, did anyone get a bit of weird... Was there any weird... Did, did, did any intro music play just there? Or was it fine? Did we get away with it? Just out of curiosity. Uh, because I was definitely uh, mildly breaking the, the tech. Right. Uh, while you think about answering that question... What's happening today? Well, um, we're talking about we're going to be talking about electrification. But before we do that, before we talk about electrification, before we go through that report, and while my voice, which you, you can tell I've not spoken basically at all today, because my vocal cords are, are very tight. Mm. Um, sorry, I'm just having a sip. Let me uh, let me first of all. Well, I'll tell you what. First of all, let's go through the. Well, it's not the news to start with. First of all, we're going to be um, going into looking at the. Um, looking at our trends, uh, the, our our transport trends. It's interesting. What's I don't really know what's gone on. Though. Any any suggestions for what's been going on the last um, uh, sort of the last well, when was it? A couple of weeks ago. Really strange. Uh, let me just do this. Uh, this bit here. This is. I mean, this is obviously a bit weird. Um, I don't know whether it's because I, I don't know. It's it's a bit strange. I'm presuming it's going to shoot back up again. But also, you'll notice a, a tremendous drop. In road ridership as well, there and also, I mean, cycling goes up and down all the time. Buses seem pretty stable, so I'm, I'm not sure what's going on. It's all a bit weird. I don't know whether it's an eccentricity of, um, uh, like, season tickets changing at the end of. I, I'm not entirely sure. It's a bit weird. Um, anyone who's got any ideas, if uh, if Pogs or SW lines are out there with an interest, then uh, yeah, I mean Easter. Yeah, I mean presumably it'll be there'll, there'll be an element of sort of holiday in there but i'd have thought anyway we'll see we'll we'll see what happens like as i say i'm looking forward to every two weeks i'm looking forward to seeing what the bank like what the start of may comes out as and we have to wait for another two weeks before we get those because the trains look busy when i was out and about they really did um so yeah people people have asked i'll, I'll try and keep this we'll, we'll kind of try and do this every week um because it, it is interesting to sort of follow that trace um yeah let's see what happens it's all a bit it's all a bit strange but um so this is the this here is the tar to remind anyone who's not not kept up to date. This is the target that that um, industry that the kind of industry leaders said. Um, no, no, this is a genuine. I don't know what they had. I, I have no idea why that. That's a very bizarre spike down. But uh, given, yeah, I don't know. Um, given that this is relative, this isn't. Uh, this is relative, not absolute figures. So this is just in relation to um, this time last year. I don't know whether it's because. Uh, of where the bank holiday has fallen, uh, you know the the Easter weekend fell. I don't know. I don't know. The, the the Catholic Church make up when Easter is, don't they? They just decide whenever it's going to be based on absolutely nothing. So uh, maybe that's why. Anyway, so that's that. Hopefully insightful. We'll keep following that as we go forwards. Um. Oh yeah. Uh. You'll have noticed that in the Scotsman today, uh, or you you may or you may not have noticed the Scotsman. Um. Online today, Alistair I had a good chat with Alistair early in the week about this. Um, 
Yeah, HST crashworthiness. So off the back of last week's rail matter, essentially, it um, piqued Alistair's interest and... Um, uh, and, and in fairness, a lot of people, a lot of people have been unfairly saying, "Oh, Alistair likes to just drive the drive the knife into ScotRail whenever he gets the chance." And in this instance, no, absolutely not. He was when I was chatting on the phone, Alistair was quite on, quite well understood the fact that this is not really ScotRail's fault or issue. This is Transport Scotland and the Scottish government's issue. They made the decision to go with refurbished short-form HST sets rather than procuring new trains. That decision was made. It was made for a variety of reasons, a huge number of different reasons, but um, it was a decision that was made. And those consequences, you know, the consequences of that um, are that we have a, a less than ideally safe train um, going around. So, um, yeah, David, thanks, thanks for that. I know people, um, yeah, I don't go on Facebook because it's a horrible mess all the time, so I'm never on there, but I, I, I did spot that there were a few um, forum-like things getting angry about this. But the reality is that it's it's irrefutable. The, the HST is not a crash-worthy vehicle by modern measures, and so justifying its continued existence requires us to... to, to it, requir- it requires some solid justification. I've yet to see that. Anyway... So um, that was the that's the discussion of that, and, and a lot of people there's there've been some bad faith arguments going on about energy dissip- about the fact that I brought up energy dissipation last in the last episode. I only did that because that's the only measure we have at the moment, so it's a relative scale. The re- that's sort of arguing about that is just distracting from the fact that the evidence is incontrovertible that these do not match. They don't have any modern crashworthiness features at all, either the class forty three power car or the Mark III coaches. Anyway, I'm not going to dwell on that. Um, plenty of discussion about that on online at the moment. So, next thing. Uh, yeah, some pretty tragic uh, news coming out of Mexico City. That was um, about 20 people, around 20 people have been killed as a result of a collapse of a bridge on the on their metro system. Um, pretty pretty shocking, to be honest. Um, that was, uh, when was that? Was, the th- was that on the 3rd of May, I think? So that was uh, a few days ago. Um, absolutely appalling scenes, really shocking uh it, it, it appears that there's been there were already complaints about the um the construction quality about the so that there are some suggestions that there were already issues that have been reported about this bridge and so i don't know we, we await the report to, to see what's happened but um pretty appalling scenes there um what a, right so next okay let's let's there isn't going to be much news um uh it is there's, there's going to be oh Ella, Ella, is it worth discussing the extremes of design? Um, <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're, the two extremes of design generally are on... Oh, I'll tell you what, let's get big face up. Uh, oh, it's my framing, because I, I was on a Zoom call with North Sound Radio earlier. There we go. Let's just correct that. There we are. That's better, isn't it? Um, hello, everyone. Oh, the, the, the lighting's looking quite fresh for once i don't look quite as pink as normal um what was i going to say sorry so on the one hand you've got like the american sort of side which is you build everything of absolute you build everything completely rock solid but that's not necessarily a good thing for crashworthiness either on the other side you have the japanese approach which is to just have zero crashworthiness in your vehicles at all but design your system such that you don't crash vehicles into each other or off the tracks um I, the European approach is somewhat of a compromise of the two. We don't go for the American pig iron approach. We don't go. For, we we don't assume that we can create crash free railway systems. Um, so those are the two extremes. Uh, there, there, I know there are quite a few people who advocate for who advocate for um, the Japanese model for for things like high speed two, but I vigorously oppose that. Um, 
for a variety of reasons, not least that the stock that runs on the on HS2, which you could potentially design to be entirely crash, well, it is being designed as 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 a zero crash system, um, is having to run onto the all those trains will have to run onto the existing network, which isn't doesn't necess- which runs on old infrastructure, which doesn't necessarily have the ability to conform to that. So, bit of a yeah. So there we go. Anyway, right. So I, I'm not going to dwell on this because uh, there's been enough discussion about that already. I think let's. Uh, let me uh, first of all whiz back to whatever I was on about here. So let's get rid of my face entirely. Why electrify railways? Well, this is a report that was released by the um, Railway Industry Association uh, very recently. When was it? It was like three weeks ago, I think. Uh, maybe not even that. Two weeks ago, it was released. Um, it kept getting delayed because news things kept happening, and then it got delayed. But then it ended up coming out on Earth Day, which is quite good. Um, so we're going to pick. Th- I wanted to pick through this because it's brilliant. There's loads of really good data to pick through, lots of really good information in there, um, and I think uh, it's worth us. I mean, I know I go on about electrification a lot, but I- it feels like a very important subject. And the more that all of us who are watching this are familiar with the key arguments, um, the the more that all of us can make those cases to our MPs, to you know people within the industry, to to people outside the industry. Um, however we're representing this case, it's good for us all to kind of go through it. And you might have questions. I'll, I'll try and explain. I'm not an electrification engineer. Gary isn't with us. You might be wondering why he isn't, uh, why I haven't got anyone else on to, to talk about this one. Uh, well, partly because I want to be able to say, partly because not have, Gary being on means that I, we have to be more politically careful because he's um, better paid than I am, so he can get told off more loudly than I than I do um, uh, and has to be more... Um, less partisan shall we say um but also partly because gary's going to be coming on to talk about discontinuous electrification at some point soon so um uh yes so uh that which i think will be interesting which i do want gary on to talk about because he's very passionate about that subject as am i so um that's what we're going to be talking about this time and without i think basically i need to just crack on essentially um before before we talk to the report, I will sort of talk briefly about, we'll remind ourselves on the state of play of, of kind of what the discussion is and where we're at and why things are being delayed and blah, blah, blah. Um, chuck your questions through. This this might be, it might end up being quite a short one, so there should be plenty of time for questions. Um, Gary Keener is here. Um, hello, Gary. You're in the chat. I, I hope I'm making your re- representations about you uh, accurately. Your ears, your ears are burning. Anyway, enough of that. Right, let's crack on. Um, yeah, do yeah. Send all your questions. Uh, for those who are new to Rail Matter, if you at me in, if you type at and then type my name, it'll appear. You can click on it. It appears nicely in red in the YouTube chat, and I can follow that. Uh, it makes it easier for me to spot your question. So if you've got a question, if you at my name into it, it means I can tell whether you're talking to me or whether you're talking to each other in the chat. It makes my life a bit easier. Um, right. Without further ado, um, welcome to tonight's Rail Matter. As the Intercity 225 fades away, I'm reminded that I need to remember to switch off uh, cursor being represented in uh, in um, in OBS. Anyway, because uh, yes, um, yes, Ella. Thanks for sending those instructions. So right. Um, oh, the app function doesn't work on mobile. Oh, anyway, don't worry about it. I think it vaguely does. Right. Uh, what am I on about? Yeah, I'm putting up this picture of um, of the approaches into Liverpool Lime Street, which has electrification in it. I like it because there's a variety of different electrification kit in here. Um, I just like this picture. Also, the scale of this picture is awesome. Like, and the approaches into Liverpool Lime Street are really cool. Um, also, uh, some S and T down here in the corner, which is quite funny. Let's let's make my face appear in the corner. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm in the corner. 
Oh, so. Um, I'm going to press this button here. Uh, here's a picture of electrification. Electrification is good for a variety of reasons that we're going to explore in the report, but I just wanted to put this picture up because I like this picture. Um, I thought I'd summarize the state of play. Let's remind ourselves of the state of play, shall we? Um, so, uh, firstly, okay, the, the broader picture is that we know that, you know, we, we go back, let's make my, make my face large, actually, briefly. We know that, because um, I, I was working on those projects when they were announced, it was very exciting. Back in whenever it was, 20... Mid early 2010s, uh, lots of electrification was announced. New Labour had been absolutely useless on new electrification. There just hadn't been any. Um, a load of electrification got. They'd sort of started instigating it, you know. Um, and there finally, electrification projects started going online. There was the idea there was going to be this grand sort of thrust of electrification, and, and there did feel at the time like if if there if the start had been a success, it might start roll kind of run run rolling on into becoming a a, a rolling program of electrification. Um. And then a couple of projects went horribly wrong because of, of but mostly because of horrible project ma failed project management and um, uh, essentially creating a load of contrived time limits, which meant everything fell apart. Um, and in fact, if you want to read about exactly what I'm talking about, then um, let's go miniaturize face because uh, the real electrification cost challenge went into great detail about what that what all those problems were. And so throughout that period from like 2014 to 2019, we had a load of electrification projects, loads of them, were, quite a lot of electrification projects happened and were fine and no one talks about them. But as a result of particularly Great Western electrification becoming problematic, um, the government bottled it and decided to just can the whole lot off rather than, you know, I don't know, understanding the problem and continuing with it, you know, because the numbers don't radically change because one project's going wrong. But anyway, the the real electrification cost challenge is, is, is almost the precursor to the report we're going to talk about tonight, which is fantastic, well worth a read. Um, lots of things in there get repeated, uh, actually, in this one. But the, this this report sort of evolved some of these ideas, and, and it's oriented slightly different. Real electrification cost challenge was addressing the, the key thing that government was afraid of, which is the idea that electrification would just cost a frightening amount of money. Um, and uh, whereas this report is, is kind of catching a bit more in amongst it. So that was the real electrification cost challenge. Following that, we had, uh, you know, we've had constant representations of government saying, for God's sake, get on with it. Start start a, a rolling program uh, moving. Um, we are shedding the skills that we developed, that, that, we, that we had lost previously. We developed all those skills and we are now losing them again if you don't kick things off. And we are now losing those skills, by the way. It's too late for us to not have shed people out of the industry. We already have. Um, so the next report that came out was uh, Network Rail's uh, Traction Decarbonisation Network Strategy, which we haven't seen the last version of, by the way. This is the interim version. I'm so glad that this got out into the public domain um, uh, so that we could pick through it. And indeed, we did for that, goodness knows how long, two-hour-long episode where we picked through it. So I'm not going to do it again. But I'm going to go through a reminder of what that said. What did that document say? Well, it said this. These are the key conclusions, which were that of the 15,400 single-track kilometres that there are in the network, um, only uh, you know, kind of only fifteen percent of the, those single track kilometers um, are suitable for alternative types of traction. The vast majority, eighty-five percent of it, thirteen thousand single track kilometers, require conventional electrification. No bones about it; they just require conventional electrification. Um, oh, it's a very good point, actually. Uh, where are we? What was, uh, Gareth Williams just? Oh no, sorry, not Tom Sedgman. No, oh, this is why you have to at me in, because I can't spot the the message I just saw that's now disappeared again. Um, uh, oh, someone asked, uh, someone pointed out, is there stuff being done now? Actually, there is. So so firstly, there, 
Scotland is kind of starting to slowly progress with with electrification. Their electrification plan. I don't think there are any shovels in the ground at the moment, but they're kind of uh, probably pushing designs that were in outline phase into into later design sta- stages before progressing. Um, Gary might be able to answer on some of this stuff as well uh, in the chat. In in the rest of the UK, uh, there is the, the there is some valleys electrification happening ish at the moment. I don't exactly know what stage we're at with that. Um, I don't know if there are a few people who are keen on the on the Welsh infrastructure who might be able to answer on that. In terms of England, there's only a, one bit of electrification going on if you ignore Crossrail, and that is um, oh actually Crossrail's electrification is all done actually, isn't it? Because it's all energised, so so that you can't count that. The electrification that's going on is is near me actually. It's it's past Colton Junction. Everyone should know about that, uh, which is electrification running from Church fenton up to york um well up to colton junction essentially which is allowing i think the main point of it is to allow the transpennine express trains that run south the the, the bimode trains to have their pantographs up as they come through and out of york uh, because they 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 take an almighty performance hit when they're running on diesel only and particularly up that bit and they get caught up by the trains behind them so i, I think that's probably a factor in it but it is br- largely part of a bigger picture of transpennine electrification which is a good thing uh gary keener points out that scotland are already piling freeze kill bride well if they're doing things in the right order that means designs are finished and it's all happening which is excellent um which means the design team will be moving on to the next thing it's a rolling program folks it's how all this stuff should be delivered anyway right enough of me waffling because it's already 20 past seven Oh yeah, so so the, the the TDNS, as you all remember, it came up with it had all these little maps which fed into the big map, the big map, um, which explained where things need to happen. And you can see most of that's green. The yellows are for ba- potential battery operation, and the purples are for uh, potential hydrogen operation. Um, uh, Graham Harris, yeah, you good point, good point. Kettering, well, Kettering to, uh, um, oh, Kettering Market Harbour is that actually um, progressing at the moment? What's included in the question mark making up the 2%, Anthony O'Brien asks. Uh, good question. The red question mark at the end there is um, is kind of undecided, could go either way. There's some, there's some stuff where you'd basically need to do a more rigorous kind of um, uh, assessment to understand exactly what you'd do there. So that's the big map. Uh, what it requires is... Uh, it requ- Well, okay, firstly, we're going to see this again. This is Noel Dolphin's graph of, of showing how kind of the, the peaks and troughs... Uh, and this is useful for a variety of reasons, not least because it allows us to get an understanding of scale, which is if we want to deliver this by 2040, which is obviously my preference, we need to be delivering 660, an average of 660 single track kilometers every year. And we peaked at um, we peaked at 580, I think, in 2018 during control period five. I don't know whether this went up in 2019 and was higher. I'm not sure. Mike, Mike, it could have been actually because quite a lot did seem to get signed off all, all at once actually there. So um, uh, actually, Gary, you've got a far better version of this graph now, haven't you, in, in really granular form. Um, so uh, you might be able to confirm that. Anyway, the point being that 660 is pretty high and, and our supply chain, you know, the industry as it is now can't deliver that. We need to, so it can't deliver that in one hit. We need this to be part of a, a broad program. So, uh, that's why I put this little slide up. Um, oh, yeah, right. So now it's gone black. What I mean by that is uh, what's going to happen is we're going to get the report up. Before we get the report up, though, there's an open letter that was sent to Grant Shapps that's, um, that's kind of potentially worth picking out very quickly. Um, there's a yeah, there's it's basically a load of signatories going, yes, do this. It's a good idea. Uh, there's the PWI with their slightly weird logo. PWI, get yourselves a, an on-white logo, please, please, please. Um uh, and essentially, this report they kind of talk about there's an executive summary and blah blah blah, and uh, that they've included. Um, basically, it's just kind of making this case. Uh, Felix Schmidt, pleased to say, um, 
uh, talks on, kind of introduces the report, as we'll see in a minute. Basically, this letter essentially summarizes what the report is. And we're going to go through the report. It's it's 20 past seven. So here it is. It's, it's, it's very shiny. Oh, for those not sure about single track kilometers, thanks, uh, Lewis and Gary, for pointing that out. Single track kilometer, STK is a single track kilometer. Um, if you have a, a kilometer of double track railway, that counts as two single track kilometers. It's just when we're talking about infrastructure, building infrastructure, it's useful to measure in, in kind of per track because obviously things multiply based on how much kit you're having to hang over the railway. So uh, what other question? What other question have we got? Uh, Tom Sedgman, why are some battery and some hydrogen? Uh, uh, right, uh, Tom, uh, what I'd recommend is watching the TDNS episode of this where we explain that, although I probably will by the end of this episode again anyway, but in the TDNS episode we explain why. Um, basically it's on distance. The 100-kilometre the threshold uh, in the distance the train has to go defines it less than that battery more than that hydrogen hydrogen and battery have different applications essentially so here we are rail decarb 21 uh it's worth giving a little shout out actually the, the, these these boys names appear at the end i think as, as well but um in fact let's whiz to the back i think it totally does yeah there they are just to make sure that they get the double mention david gary noel and, and, and hoops paul hooper um so there they are mentioned at the front uh kind of appearing at the front congrats to all four of you this is a anteria for supporting you um it's a really good report and uh lots of really juicy data in here that's uh, good fun sorry if that was if that screen rolling through the pages really quickly was a bit uh eye flashy sorry about that um right anyway forward david clark from ria is is, is opening it up um he sort of announces it uh, asking the question why electrification that's sort of that's the theme. It's, it's why is rail why rail electrification? Why are we? Why is that such a good idea? And that's kind of that, that's why I've cribbed that for the uh, the episode title. Um, so he's kind of outlined the state of play just as I have. Uh, Rio's consistently called for rolling rural electrification and fleet orders of um, of, of kind of low carbon self powered rolling stock. Um, electrification. They're kind of pointing out all the key stuff that we that we expect to see. Um, the the kind of the cancellation because of GWEP. Uh, this led to the electrification cost challenge. You've you've seen all this. I've explained all this, demonstrating that seventy five percent of projects from during CP five had been delivered efficiently, but that successful projects were overshadowed by GWEP uh, and NWEP as well. Actually, the, the, those two are pretty pretty horrible. Um, there's the lesson and the key lesson. This is the point that cost electrification cost challenge. The key lesson was that a rolling program of electrification will avoid these problems. A steady volume of activity over the long term. And this report is going to kind of get into it. Um, one tonne of carbon saved in 2021 uh, means 29 tonnes saved by 2050. Um, uh, I will explore why why that particular statement, uh, why that's true and, and, and explain through that. Anyway, right, so... Um, and also, to be fair to David, uh, and and this report does allude to the alternatives. It, it doesn't say electrification at, at all costs. It does allude to the alternatives that that have two roles really. One is a transition. You can't if if you want to transition from diesel to electric, electrification doesn't happen immediately overnight. There's there's time to do all this work. And the other is, as we've talked about, is those fringe situations where you 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 wouldn't prioritise the electrification of the West Highland line at least for you know thirty forty years. So it might happen eventually, but for now, no. Uh, here's a nice picture. Uh, and uh, there's a nice picture here saying that electric passenger trains have reduced their emissions by 30% since 2005. That's reference to the fact that um, basically the grid has decarbonized over that period. And so even the electric trains that you have now, they get more energy efficient without any... In fact, the whole railway network, as we speak, without doing any um, electrification, 
gets more energy efficient because um, you know re- releases less carbon, should I say, uh, because we're decarbonizing the the UK national grid. Um, there's a nice picture of a, a of an, a, a, a what is that? Great Western IET. There's some nice mono booms over the top. Are those mono booms? Do those count? Or are they just put regular? Oh, they're just regular four track portals. Oh, maybe Gary, tell me off. Right. Anyway, uh, Felix Schmidt um, from uh, formerly um, oh, he's Professor Emeritus at. Um, uh, BCRE at the University of Birmingham. Um, he, he kind of retired recently, didn't he? But he's still chair of the Railway Division of IMAC-E. Um He talks about Siemens demonstrating in 1879 that electric trains are a th- were a thing. So, you know, this is old tech. Uh, Siemens have been doing the, you know, Siemens kind of got there first, essentially, and they st- you know, Siemens still exist. They're still doing their thing. Um, uh, so, yeah, nice, nice point out. Uh, electrification, future proof technology. These are all key points. Talking about high speed, intent the the three F's, and I'm, hopefully this will come up as well later. The three F's you need to remember from where where electrification is vital is um, fast services, um, frequent services, or freight services. If those, if either of those three are a thing, you need conventional electrification. Alternative traction won't cut it. Anyway, Felix commends this report. Um, let's uh, let's do this thing. Here's the executive summary. Shall I just whiz through the executive summary? We we kind of know all the jazz with that. I think we can. So it's just kind of a, t- a two pager, really. We know all that stuff. Let's skip through to the to the kind of the body of it, shall we? Or shall we? Let's have a look. Gar- Gary, you know this report well. If um, uh, if is there any stuff in the um, any stuff that I need to be paying attention to within the uh, um, any any stuff I need to be paying attention to within the executive summary? There's not elsewhere. I'm presuming not. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'll I'll jump back to it now anyway. So. Opens up with, I mean, it's all very glossy. It's it's a lot shinier than the electrification cost challenge report. I'll point out. Good work, Ria, um, for making it very shiny. Uh, I'm pleased about that. There there were a few, you know, it was it was a rough and ready piece of work. The, the electrification cost challenge, but it, it did the job. But this is very shiny, and I think unfortunately, shiny is a good thing and, and makes politicians pay attention to it. Uh, the Climate Change Act. So it talked about the legally binding requirement. Actually, uh, frustratingly, just like a day or two after this report was released. Um, Bojo announced new limitations. I think seventy-five percent by twenty thirty, wasn't it? Was that right? Anyone else can correct me on that. Um, yes. So, uh, yes. So, um, the fact that yes. Yeah, so there's a that, okay. They changed that. Independent of that being changed, there's a there's a requirement for us to. Um, yeah, and I'm glad they're pointing out a thing which I talk about a lot is that basically throughout my entire lifetime, um, we've reduced our GHG emissions. To sixty to to fifty eight percent of nineteen ninety levels, but that's entirely, almost entirely from power generation. It's almost entirely from the fact that we've closed a load of uh, coal power stations. Um, that's that's entirely it. It's not and 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 as 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 you'll remember, I often say transport has stayed completely flat during that period. Uh, road is road uh, emissions are the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the UK now, and they have flatlined since my entire my entire life. They have been the same in the UK because. Engines have got more efficient, but people have bought bigger cars, so cancel that out. And also, we drive more. Um, we drive more. Seventy-eight percent by twenty thirty. Thanks, Joseph Harrison. Um, so uh, he did make it more strict, uh, Sakura. But unfortunately, targets don't necessarily translate into action. Targets seem to be just uh, anyway. It's another discussion, isn't it? So, am I going to actually say anything useful? Am I going to waffle onwards? So basically, this first page is, is outlining the kind of the the, the, the bigger picture. Um, and the yeah, so the CCC, which is the the Climate Change Committee, the UK Committee on Climate Change, they they talk about car mileage being reduced um, by ten percent by a shift to active travel and public transport. So so it's talking about modal sh- modal shift being critical. 
And this is a key point. Electrification is not the route to decarbonisation. Electrification is a useful uh, stepping stone on that on that on that route, but but only as part of the bigger picture of improving the way that, that how effective the railways are at moving people and things around. So electrification, as a in a pure sense of just re, re, stopping you burning diesel to, to drive trains around, isn't the key reason why electrification is important for decarbonisation. Um, and I, by the end of that, I kind of hammer that point home. Um, so this is the key thing: is is the CCC talking about driving a shift? So if you draw, if if there was a ten percent shift, ignore active travel. If there's a ten percent shift to rail, that would require rail to to nationally double its capacity at the moment, right? So that's the scale we're talking about. So so that's a major major increase in the amount of people and things we're moving around. Um, and HGV mileage is is a critical part of that. HGVs, road HGVs, are not going to get electrified as quickly as passenger uh, kind of uh, you know electric cars are a, a thing. Gary drives one. Um, he drives a Tesla. Boo. Um, the 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 fact is that electric cars are a thing. Okay, pickup is still very slow. They're still very expensive. A lot of people can't. Most people can't afford them. Cars are generally the preserve of, of, of mid-range income people and above, not not lower-income people. So, um, so it's only part of the mixture. HGVs, no, no chance. You're not electrifying those anytime soon. So it's really critical that rail picks up the slack. And as we have more um, uh, ultra-low emission zones appearing in towns and cities, that last mile benefit that you get from a HGV not having to change its load from one vehicle to another gets ro- gets lost because HGVs will have to start doing that. As soon as you have HGVs having to exchange the expensive stuff when you're moving goods around is not basically the moving of the good, it's the transferring it from one thing to another, which is why the con- the, the shipping container was so successful because it got rid of that, or a huge amount of that. So that's the expensive thing. The So as soon as you have to start shifting uh, goods from, you know, cross-exchanging, interchanging goods from a lorry into a van or whatever it is, the benefits of HGVs diminish massively. At that point, rail needs to be ready to pick up the slack because the efficiency of the cost efficiencies of having one driver and eighty HGVs or whatever it is um, become massive. Not to mention the fuel costs and obviously the carbon uh, kind of implications of that. So this is a discussion of potential savings. I think I've put graphs up that look like this as well, where you talk about savings of of modal shift um, and kind of the the, the, the savings of uh, of carbon that those represent. So, so here's a discussion of modal shift, and this is the key thing that's highlighted. They've already highlighted this early. Rail's greatest contribution to UK decarbonisation is likely to be from modal shift to rail. However, to accept this modal shift, the rail network needs to increase both its capacity to accept it and have sufficient high-performance electric traction to attract traffic from other modes, particularly for freight. These are the key things. Thankfully, what I've just said, reassured that the underlined bit matches what I've just been wittering on about. There's a nice picture of a Class 88 with some uh, some container wagons. Shout out to the Rail Freight Group and Maggie Simpson doing doing the Lord's work on getting as many people to move things by rail, you know, freight by rail as possible. Um, so permanent solutions to rail decarbonisation. So here, here we've got a comparison of diesel and electric traction. So what's being said here? So we've got some details in Appendix 1, um, which we'll get to because there's some really juicy numbers in Appendix 1. Um, so we've got uh, continue to add me in for questions by the way I'll do my best to kind of pause I'll, I'll try and pause between chapters in fact I'll do that now what questions have we got what, what are people saying uh, oh, not too many remember to add me in and, and it'll appear red but it's just um, just Ella teasing me about Tesla truck convoys with autopilot solving all of the problems yeah that was my first rail piece was it or my first or second piece for rail magazine was about uh, the fact that convoyed electric HGVs are a fm vaporware and b not going to solve most of the problems anyway so yes um 
look it up on Medium. It's there to be downloaded and read. So what what we've got here? Da, da, da. So electric trains' power is primarily limited only by the current that can be drawn from the overhead line or third rail, whereas a diesel train's power is limited by the size of its engine, and critically, its ability to cool the engine. That's that's kind of the key feature for IETs. Um, is that um, yeah, the criticality for ITs is that you've got an incredibly powerful engine packaged into a very small space, and essentially the limiting factor isn't so much that you you know you could distribute more power under un, under a, uh, an intercity express train, you know, the replacement for the high speed, the HSTs. You could package more power underneath them, but you could because you're limited by space, you couldn't get the heat out of there. You know, it's a basic physics equations about how much heat is being generated and has to be dissipated um, based on the inefficiency of diesel engines. So that is a critical thing. And again, the, the size of diesel engines, either within a within a kind of a, a power-packed little mini thing like you have in the Class 755 Stadler things, or more likely an underfloor engine like you've got on Voyagers, Meridians, and, uh, you know, all diesel multiple units by and large. You've got underfloor engines. Again, space is limited. Um, so... Uh, where are we? Let's have a look through this. Diesel engines uh, have unavoidably uh, have unavoidable energy losses. They convert chemical energy and fuel. Yep, absolutely. So the, I think there. I think David Shearer is, is the master of kind of going through creating some diagrams, explaining this, and kind of getting the numbers out. So this, I, I think we'll pick through that in the appendix. But um, the key thing: electric trains are generally three times more energy efficient than diesel trains. Um, so that's. That's ignoring the kind of carbon outputs. That's just in terms of energy efficiency, of, of pure energy efficiency, of using the, using the kind of the the, the energy, however you create your, your electrical energy, because a lot of diesel engines you know, create electrical energy in the train to then power the traction motors. Um, however you do that, they are, um, you know, electric trains are more generally kind of quite a bit more energy efficient than diesel trains. Um, so what else have we got? So we've got what's it? A nice table: CO two compa- emission comparison between diesel electric passenger vehicles, two thousand nine to two thousand nineteen. Ah, so this is just showing that very kind of okay. And engines, things have got more efficient, I think, in the diesel. So there is a bit of a reduction in terms of um, diesel usage as as older trains have been scrapped. Generally, the newer engines have been left in place, so you get an improvement. Um, although interestingly, the number of tons per vehicle has actually increased. Um, anyway, so and also the CO two per liter. I, I'm not entirely sure. What, um, other other people can maybe fill those gaps in. So um, fleet sizes. Uh, in, that's okay. In terms, sorry, that's just vehicles. The number of vehicles. So you've had a reduction in diesel vehicles. Um, so reduction in diesel use. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that totally undermines what I've just said. So actually, the, the emissions have increased possibly because we're sweating the asset more, and actually the the emissions have increased per liter of burn of fuel burned as well. That's interesting. So that to- ignore what I was saying before. That actually efficiency has got worse for diesel. With electric, because the grid's been decarbonized quite substantially, you know that that massive grid decarbonization since sixty percent reduction since um, since nineteen ninety, you can see that even over ten years there's been quite a tremendous reduction in the um, in the amount of CO two emissions. You know trains have got more energy efficient despite being precisely the same trains that they were ten years ago, um, or you know as an example, not not entirely the case. But yeah, so that that's quite that's quite a cool fact. Um, right, so uh, here we are. The lack of such a rolling program. Uh, uh, this is just a nice excerpt saying the lack of a rolling program of electrification was one of the main reasons for the Great Western electrification overrun. I'm glad that Ria are being more bullish, saying no, no. The whole problem is that you didn't you created it as a project, not as a program. Electrification, as with so many things on linear infrastructure, um, doesn't work as a big hit project. It needs to be a program. It's linear infrastructure. Things kind of it's a it's essentially like a uh, a conveyor belt, a, a kind of a factory production line. It therefore works best as a rolling program, not as a big hit, do it all at once. 
Um, Ella asks a legit question, which is, what is CO2E? CO2E is uh, CO2 and equivalent gases. So it includes within that methane um, other gases that contribute to, you know, so they're, they're normalized, other gases that contribute to, to, to the greenhouse effect, to climate change, are normalized um, into CO2 as a kind of a broad measure. Um, yes, uh, oh, Gary's coming in with the de- definition. Thank you. Uh, no, Joseph, it's not emissions. It's uh, it's equivalent. Yeah, yeah. No, no worry, Joseph. Not a problem. It's not. Uh, it, it, uh, it's a good question. Gary Keener's pointing out electric trains can also exceed their rated power for short periods without damage and frequently do. Try that with diesel or hydrogen or battery. That's a nice little tidbit. Thanks, Gary. Um, uh, right. So let me go through some of these questions because it's, it's appearing. Uh, is there any way the cost of moving freight um, on... Uh, and off the rails is cheaper, so it's more appealing uh, to to. Well, yeah, there are lots of ways to do that, but the the key thing is 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 that we, on a policy level, introduce ultra low emission zones that uh, that exclude your forty ton axle load, whatever it is, HGVs from actually being allowed into that. So as soon as HGVs have to essentially pay their way, also fairer um, fairer uh, vehicle taxes and and, and uh, kind of road pricing will also solve some of these issues. So. Um, yes, we could make make things more efficient, but actually, you know, rail freight interchanges are pretty efficient already. So there are always things you can do. But actually, the and, and certainly in terms of a, a user interface, a customer interface for rail freight, there isn't one. I've no. If I decided I had a load of stuff I wanted to ship on by rail, I'd have no idea where to start. There needs to be a, an easier way to do that. But I think the bigger picture has to be a broader policy level. The industry, the rail industry, can only do so much. That broader policy picture has to be. Um, that we have ultra low emission zones being introduced, that we have road pricing that actually more fairly represents the damage that HGV, the huge damage that HGVs do to the road. Um, uh, Gareth Williams, is this report available to download anywhere? Uh, yes, it's in the description of this video. You can download it. Uh, I'm ignoring Ella's Hyperloop reference. Uh, Joseph Harrison asks, if everything's electrified, would it make sense for a standardized 125 mile an hour capable freight to operate across the entire conventional network once HS2 is built? Uh, my gut feeling is yes. Um, but that's kind of uh, rolling stock strategy is another thing that we probably need to get someone in to talk about because yes, I, I think ideally you just have a, a fairly standardised fleet. Okay, it's probably not a good. It's probably a good idea to have a bit of a mixture of manufacturers to 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 put some redundancy into the system. But basically, you should have specifications that all the trains can accelerate like a, like an a, an electric IET can that they all comfortably roll along at 125 that they all conform to the same broad standards that uh, frankly they all provide level boarding so they should all have lower floors and yes you do have a difference between long distance and and, and shorter distance stock uh, you know metro stock so so to an extent yes but we have quite to an extent but i think that partly that should come from standards kind of defining what parameters they fit within Good question. Will HS2 opening make it easier to schedule conversion of other lines to OLE? Uh, to an extent, yes, but mixed mixed on that because, uh, yeah, mixed on that. Right, lots of uh, lots of stuff in here. Uh, Gary Keener pointing out that CO2 equivalent is a weighted average of all greenhouse gases. There we go. So, okay. Right. There's lots of detailed technical questions going on there, so um, which is good stuff. The chat's always fantastic on these. I love it. For those just listening in podcast-only forum, I'm sorry you miss it. At some point, you have to drop in and enjoy the chat because there's always it's like another layer on on a rail matter. There's always really good discussion going on in the in the chat, particularly when people like Gary and David and others drop in and offer their expertise and knowledge. Uh, this so the costs and benefits. This is talking about all huge number, and I, we talked about this in the TDNS episode, right? Um, traction decarbonisation network strategy episode. The, 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 you get rolling electric rolling stock is lighter, it's cheaper, it therefore damages the track less, it's therefore cheaper to lease, it's therefore that it has cheaper um, uh, costs to actually pay to run on the on the track as well. 
Um, reliability is improved for similar reasons. You know, um, they're, they're, they're just much less complicated machines than diesel locomotives, particularly when you've got multiple units where it's all compacted. You've got a huge amount of heat dissipating. Those fail at a much higher rate than um, than, than electric units. A, a good example of this, and again, this I got this from David Shearer's, um, the cost of the Great Western Fleet, the changing cost to the contract of the Great Western Fleet when it moved from being electric only to being bi-mode, it added £1.3 billion to the overall cost of that um, that fleet. Now, bearing in mind what the cost overrun on GWEP was, that £1.3 billion is easily over the as well over the cost it would have been to just electrify everything that those trains were running underneath anyway. So um, that gives you an idea of the extent to which electrification is a no-brainer when it comes to any anything fast, frequent, freight. No-brainer. Electrify it conventionally. Oh, look, here's Noll's graph as, as reappeared again. Um, electric trains cleaner, more powerful traction, provides faster journeys. Yeah, they accelerate much more quickly. The the rate of acceleration of IETs uh, in electric versus in bi-mode, uh, kind of diesel mode, is staggering, um, particularly on, on routes like uh, Transpennine, uh, where we were looking, I was doing some work in Transpennine and, and looking at the graphs of uh, the electric IET and the diesel IET. The diesel IET is quite a lot slower than the Class 185, by the way, like dramatically slower than the 185. And it's just, it's frankly sluggish. And it's the same when it's in electric mode pulling away even on the flat. Like the electric train is uh, substantially quicker. Uh, like the acceleration dramatic uh, they haven't corrected the timetable yet when's the timetable change happening anyone in the chat but the um whenever i i've been traveling to london a few times this year pleasingly and when we've done it every like certainly the last trip we were sat waiting in every station in a couple of stations we were waiting for ages just because we'd caught up with the timetable and we just needed to sort of let the slack disappear so that slack disappears more capacity and that's kind of what electric so the, the the benefits there in terms of capacity are partly that you can fit more people in an electric train anyway because you haven't got diesel engines you've got you know, you've got more space but also um you have uh the fact that they accelerate more quickly means you can squeeze more trains into the same length of track um per hour which is a good thing right uh deceleration acceleration blah, blah you know lighter so it can decelerate more quickly as well uh, David Bum said, presumably the extra 1.3 billion was additional whole life cost. Yeah, it was just varied into the contract. So it was the cost of the diesel engines, the cost of the additional maintenance. Yeah, not fuel, just the uh, the, the cost of new vehicles and and uh, maintenance as well. So uh, since Great Western electrification, uh, electric, electrification programs have been delivered to cost and budget. I, I've noticed they're saying electrification programs as well. It's, it's interesting. It's important to be clever with language uh, this is germany by the way and they've just basically rolled on with around 200 single track kilometers of electrification since the forever times they've just been at it since uh, i don't know what it was but slightly before 1968 i don't think we have data and we've kind of missing data before that but essentially just rolling along with a with a rolling program arguably it could be quicker 200 is quite low i think we should we can can and do need to do more than that in the uk because we've been in gb rather because we've been so bone idle um, but anyway, that's this graph, Noel Dolphin's graph is terrific. Gary, is there any Republic that you've put the on the? Uh, you haven't. I think I got a version of it, but just um, it's very detailed, and you have it for your own uses. And I'm annoying you by advertising the fact that it exists. Uh, but anyway, there is a graph which is even more detailed, which kind of has the breakdown of Third Rail and, and which projects and everything. Which is which, I'm sure Gary could write, if he hasn't already. Gary could write a, another piece on it that will probably end up in Modern Railways rather than Rail because. Uh, because you know roger ford is a big advocate for electrification rightly so um anyway right so uh and to his great credit i should say uh main data we, we've looked at all this stuff embodied carbon this is a really key thing and actually this is a question i think this is going to answer a question i hope is it is it going to uh self-powered um 
I think it's ah yeah yeah, yeah. this is this is exactly what I'm hoping to so um Phil Hay raised a a, a, reason, a a good valid question a while back um on the twitters about um does the embodied carbon cost of electrification you know the cost of building it the the the, co- the carbon that you're emitting through journey you know through moving the creating the materials installing the materials all the people moving to site to install it all those embodied emissions are those going to be um are those actually out, you know are those cancelled out or or better by the benefits um that you get and this this is kind of the the analysis here so um the answer is yes by the way uh and it's so so the total amount 13,400 uh, sorry 13,040 single track kilometers results in 4.4 million tons of co2 equivalent now my by my calculation uh but the the overnight uh so so the carbon savings can be estimated by between the differences between the two so there's a kind of looking at how much you'd then save by that level of electrification um so that gives you one point so the savings from that um so the so basically annually uh you get a saving of just just with that electrification you get and the current number of trains running you get a saving of 1.1 or 1.2 million tons so that means that only in in only four years that the carbon cost of electrification are paid back only in four years and the program will take a lot longer than that by the way so absolutely it's paid back easy um so there we go given the short payback period derived from this estimate uh, and that electrification will offer carbon savings for many years it's reasonable to conclude that carbon benefits of electrification far outweigh the carbon cost of its provision i think that's put to bed very straightforward um, all right here's a section 3.4 self-powered alternatives to diesel traction um they have a lower efficiency than than uh, than electric trains. This, I think, the most interesting here is a measure of um, of kind of uh, let's have a think about this. That was the best. Yeah, by mass, the mass of fuel, or is it by actually no by uh, by liter because storage volume is is relevant. So this is the the comparison of different so the number of megajoules that you get per liter um, comparison of different uh, alternative traction modes. So. Um, so diesel, you get thirty six uh, kind of uh, megajoules per liter. Is that right? Megajoules per liter. Is that right? Let me know. let me have a think about that. Uh, is that David? If David's in here, I'm, I'm trying to. Is that is that the right scale? Because that's quite a lot of joules per. Anyway, it might be joules. Anyway, right. Okay. Basically, relatively speaking, it's it's thirty six. Whereas for um, hydrogen at realistic pressures that drops to five or three depending on different pressures that you can keep it keep the hydrogen at so 700 or 350 bar so that's a massive reduction so so for hydrogen at 350 bar that is um it's 10 times more volume required for the same energy output and a battery pack is even worse current battery pack expectation is that it's that you're looking at actually um 20 times more volume required for the same energy output and for um and for kind of the expectation of improved battery technology you're kind of getting back up towards 10 times more volume so it's about what is that maybe 12 13 times more volume required than diesel to, for the same energy output so diesel is a very efficient way of powering trains if you're gonna if you've if you've made the decision to to move your power pack around rather than taking it from the wires diesel is very good if you ignore the carbon emissions obviously amongst other things so gary keener is saying it is megajoules thanks gary uh just needed reassuring there my it's been a while since i did a level physics and i can't rem- remember quite what 
what I'd be expecting. I've, I was playing with Mega Jewels earlier, uh, which is why I'm, you know, in terms of crashworthiness, which is why I was a little baffled at how large those numbers are. But anyway, yeah, so Mega Jewels per litre. So 36 for diesel, five for hydrogen, uh, or sorry, three for hydrogen at current realistic uh, compression, and uh, two for battery, two, two Mega Jewels per litre for, for battery packs. Um, so not great, to be honest. Uh, and uh, there's a nice graph down here that kind of explains that and shows that diesel kind of has this little little bar here because it doesn't require much percentage of interior coach space to be stored. Whereas these numbers, you know, you're looking at kind of current battery technology, you're looking at 15% of the interior coach space being taken up by batteries. That's tremendous. And in terms of the mass, for hydrogen, it's not bad because you're compressing it. So fine. For for battery packs, it's huge, huge amount of, of interior coach mass is is being taken up by. It's over a hundred percent of the mass of the vehicle. So you're basically doubling the mass of your of your train. If you're using a battery train, you're doubling its mass. Quite something, quite something. So uh, yes, there's lots of good text that we should all read here. But I'm kind of going through and picking out the nice, pretty pictures because you know time. Um, Mike Waldridge is asking, what's the rough maximum range for the current generation of battery-powered units? And it's about 100 kilometers uh, for kind of foreseeable realistic um, uh, foreseeable realistic uh, range for battery trains. The, the, the realistic th threshold is, is about 100 kilometers. Um, so battery traction is therefore only suitable for short end-to-end -end journeys. Journey distance is limiting its use to branch lines or to, electric, to enable electric trains to travel for short distances off the electrified network. Um, that's why the TDNS, yeah, so the TDNS there is assuming a range of 60 to 80 kilometers before they need recharging. So there you are. Um, yes, Mike Roldridge, it is answered. Uh, the nice big text on here. So even though this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I've not zoomed in on the page. Hopefully the text is large enough that you can kind of see it. Um, so the, the kind of a key explicit finding there, there is not sufficient space to fit traction batteries or store hydrogen within a freight locomotive. Full stop. Freight freight is not viable using these alternative traction methods just absolutely explicitly that's it right there um there's loads of good detail lots and lots of really good detail in here gary i hope i'm not underplaying your report too much by skipping over the detail but i think the, the things that are pulled out graphically are really valuable for us to talk about i think so the tdns study concluded well you've seen that i did i put this up on a slide already it's talking about the percentages actually they've got slightly different numbers here they've got 86 rather than 85 percent and nine percent i think that's because they've attributed the two percent with actually had a question mark on it to both uh hydrogen and normal electrification which is which is fair enough so they've kind of attributed those one that one the, the two percent kind of halved it between those two um so uh comparing battery hydrogen and diesel traction uh so kind of yeah diesel traction has poor performance and efficiency compared to electric traction provides sufficient power to operate intensive fast passenger service and heavy freight trains so we know this that we're not replacing diesel on a technological level necessarily. Um, you know, th this is this is where we we talk about the fact that decarbonisation agenda provides that that final oomph to make the point about why diesel needs to go. Um, it's the bigger picture stuff. Um, you know, a modern railway shouldn't be running with diesel anyway. You know, the, the the particulates that are being pumped out, the noise, all these features as well. Other things that people talk about though are as as kind of some of the transitory uh, kind of technologies. Biofuels is one. Now, I am massively skeptical about biofuels for a variety of, of reasons that aren't, I don't think, talked about here. For similar reasons that I'm massively skeptical about carbon offsetting. Carbon offsetting is a pseudoscience. If you see that, if you get a menu that says, like we, I did recently, actually, where, where, where were we? We got a menu and it said we had our menu had been offset. Basically, the carbon had been offset in our meal by a certain amount. Oh, yeah, we're down in um, Derbyshire. 
carbon had been offsetting our meal and we we paid a bit towards that it was like oh well fine if we paid a bit towards some 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 planting trees fine i don't mind that but don't talk about it as if you're annulling carbon that you've emitted into the atmosphere carbon offsetting is a pseudoscience uh, and the, the idea of you know the, the fact that people trade for carbon uh, it's just nonsense it's absolutely damaging nonsense anyway biofuels let's forget my prejudices on biofuels let's have a look at biofuels potential there's a potential chance that biofuels can be burnt in existing diesel engines production of such fuels can have large indirect land use emissions absolutely particularly for vegetable oil-based biofuels double absolutely um yeah biofuels result in it invariably end up with third world countries swapping out crops that people survive on subsistence crops with these cash crops for biofuels this is very very bad we should not be doing this um again I, there are lots of things the ccc does that i don't agree with They're, they over rely on electric vehicles they also suggest that biofuels can play a significant role in meeting long-term climate targets i fundamentally disagree with that assertion and i'm glad to see that that ria are kind of refuting that point um and so they kind of go into some detail about that i just biofuels bad very bad Anyway, more importantly, let's have a look at freight locomotives. You know, the, the, the report on biofuels, by the way, is more nuanced. Let's have a look at freight locomotives. How am I doing in terms of... There's, there's more report to go, by the way, and I'm, it's already seven minutes to. This is going to... It's running on a bit longer than I expected it to. Well, there's, a, there's a surprise, eh? Um, Richard Smith is saying, what about nuclear-powered trains? Well, Network Rail have a policy of, getting, of sourcing as much of their electricity as possible from nuclear because it's reliable, it's clean, which means that most of our electric trains are nuclear trains, actually nuclear power trains so freight to okay this is kind of running through the, the discussion we've had already actually yeah so class 92 electric locomotive has twice the power of a class 70 diesel expanding the electrified network to make greater use of such electric trains would promote freight modal shift from the resultant faster freight trains and reduce delays to passenger trains you know major and i think um their their discussion we've got an entire fleet a huge fleet of diesel locomotives that are going to get swapped out um uh uh, sorry, I'm just noticing John Christoph, who uh, uh, friend of the show, saying uh, mild, mild quibbling with characterization of carbon offsets as pseudoscience, uh, but absolutely correct. They're extremely misguided policy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, there's some work that was done by the Rail Freight Group. Uh, for, I can't remember the name of the chap he presented at the launch of, of the um, uh, campaign to electrify Britain's railways and laid out a fantastic presentation showing how little... Uh, like not a huge amount of electrification is required to do a lot of infill that results in a massive shift of a kind of shift of the balance uh, between needing diesel a diesel um, uh, freight locomotive fleet to an electric freight locomotive fleet and bearing in mind as i was saying a second ago and forgot the class 66 is up for is, is kind of discussions are happening now about how those are going to be renewed we should not be renewing the class 66 with a like for like diesel cocoa should be an electric cocoa that replaces it or at least an equivalent powerful bobo for the traction engineers on here um yes so um yeah basically so that's like a fundamental thing we need to electrification enables that fleet to be swapped out with a far more efficient far more powerful uh far lighter fleet um so there we go. Oh, yeah, so, sorry. So here we are. So yeah, the CILT have done that work. Yeah, the Rail Freight Forum. Sorry, it wasn't the Rail Freight Group. Is the is this the CILT's Rail Freight Forum has concluded just five hundred route miles of electrification are needed, and seventy percent of UK rail freight could then be electrically hauled. And, and there's a nice sort of uh, diagram kind of showing some of these things here, uh, which is nice. Right, next chapter, and we're only at five to eight. Hooray! I need to stick more to the graphics, right? It's the Julian Worth map. Julian Worth, of course, Julian Worth. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Gary. Out of the 89% electrification, I presume that the majority of that is OLE. Yeah, it's all 
almost all early. There is some third rail traction to ha- electrification to happen down in the southeast, which makes sense on a short term basis. Um, we've got bigger fish to fry than quibbling over a few little gaps in an area that's already understood in terms of risk. So transitional solutions. So this is a section I always through, but it, but it's it's kind of pointing out that firstly we need that we need to be deploying battery and hydrogen trains as early as possible. We need to be not be dithering on these because we will need them in places and they need to be proven technology. We need to have the critical mass of them being proven technology. Um, I'm actually writing a piece on hydrogen trains, which I'll talk a little bit about what's going to be happening next with those. But spoiler alert it's happening soon it's just waiting on government once again we're waiting on government to press the fund button um on that but everyone's ready to go all the people involved are ready you know alston northern are all ready to go on that scheme um uh, right so by mode it's talking about traction flexibility can help the transition uh their diesel engines mean they cannot ultimately be part of a zero carbon railway so it's I think that diesel by diesel electric by modes have a good a major part to play a, a diesel locomotive a diesel loco sorry Diesel rolling stock, diesel passenger trains are still far more efficient than, you know, far far less carbon intensive than people driving around. So modal shift is still, to, to rail is still positive. So in in the meantime, these the bimodal trains that we have now are part of the picture for the for the kind of the, the short to medium term. Um, hybrids and dual fuel. Uh, this is talked talking about kind of um, uh, adding extra kind of gen generator sets and and sort of kind of resulting in these sort of hybrid operation that's yeah yeah these are all of these options are, are there but they are transition technologies um all right here we go so research and innovation <laughs> this is an absolutely critical point and we're going to get to the conclusion of the report later where they kind of hammer this point home um but um uh let's see uh let me go oh, we've got lots of questions let's have a look next time table change 16th of may thanks james p um ella talked about the class the, the the class 92 which is actually double the weight it needs to be because it's got a huge amount of uh, of system redundancy because it had to run through the channel i presume uh yes because channel so the 92 can be even lighter absolutely um uh, david shepherd should a rolling electrification program be led by old train stock or highest number of train movements oh that's a question that actually i think the the um high-speed rail group have done some or high-speed rail industry leader or rail industry leaders north or one of these various a million groups that there are um have done some work in prioritizing what in deciding on prioritization ultimately it's, it's going to be a mixture of political decision uh, and practicality and fleet expiry there's not one thing there's no we should do it this way we should do it that way there's there's a big picture to to understand quite how you know how you prioritize um yeah, lots of different things. I think rolling stock expiry is going to be a key part of that. John Christoph, regarding Class 66s, would you make any distinction at all for swapping out their prime movers for ones with a higher emissions rating than the old EMD 710s they're getting? I think I think part of the discussion is that they, that, that has been excluded as a possibility by EM by by Caterpillar. I think that that's part of the issue is that they're you can't squeeze you can't squeeze any more of an efficient engine within that space i i think i might be corrected on that uh joseph harrison uh, was northern's decision to refurbish their sprinters rather than at least replace them with 195s after the stupid yes or yes <laughs> uh no comment well i think this sprinters had a little bit of extra life in them that needed to be um squeezed out i think uh there was enough issues with rolling stock introduction and, and the, the rolling stock supply chain being squeezed desperately to to not worry about kind of doing it with trains that were kind of halfway through their life as well 
Um, right, critical thing here. Whilst research and innovation can, con con can contribute much to rail decarbonisation, it's important to understand the limitations. This whole chapter is basically going to say, stop suggesting that electrification is somehow going to be skipped by some magical, wondrous FM technology. No, fundamentally, the technology that makes electric trains good now is the same technology that made electric trains good in 1879. It's the fact that you're taking the power source out of the train. You can generate that power any way you like. Ultimately, the the, the system to get the power into the train is a mechanical system. Gary being an expert on that stuff. Um, uh, yes. So, um, yeah, research cannot, e.g., change, change the laws of nature or properties of materials. Yeah, this is some of the finest, uh, some of the fine work. Research cannot, for example, change the laws of nature or the physical properties of materials, Captain. Uh, some of Dave, David Shepard's, uh, David Shepard, David, sorry, David Shepard is in the chat. Dave Shearer's uh, finest work there. Um, uh, yes, it's a good, it's a good Star Trek quote. Uh, much love. Anyway, what was I waffling on about before? Um, oh yeah, the the mechanical system of which Gary designs in in the chat now. That mechanical system, um, yes, there you can change materials, but fundamentally that mechanical system is doing the same, precisely the same job that that it was doing in in the earliest catenary systems. You know, it's uh, a tension system to make sure that you've always got contact. That you're never going to pull that. You're not the pantograph designed such that it picks up that contact. You design the system to smoothly go across the head of the pantograph so you get even wear. You design it so it doesn't hook over and pull the wires down. All these things are the same mechanical things that were happening to be done in the first catenary systems long ago, um, uh, and it just happens to be that we get we we have new materials. We can can be clever about the way we do things. We can tension things more cleverly. We can, we can create lighter systems. All these sorts of tech that Gary could go on about in the in the chat and indeed might well do for a while um if, if you prod him about it so um yes technology might be out there but fundamentally we've already established that that batteries you know we're talking about orders of magnitude less uh and it kind of orders of magnitude more volume being occupied in a train you know doubling the mass of a train um current technology just we're not at any time soon going to somehow make it that having the power pack on the train, having the power station's worth of energy on a train is better than not having that power pack of energy on the train. That's never going to, you're never going to best the fact that having the energy, having the power, having a power station not on the train is better than having it on the train. Nothing will ever change that. As, as, um, you can change the laws of physics, Captain, as, uh, as David Shears has pointed out. Uh, Borislav, isn't battery production quite unethical? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that might well change, but at the moment it absolutely is. So there we go. That's a key thing. Uh, so if, if, if you've got the likes of Grant Chap saying you never know, we might skip electrification. That's why we're not doing it on East West Rail. Then um, throw that line at him and, and also ideally some, some smelly socks and maybe the odd rotten fruit, piece of fruit. Um, so uh, there we go. And, and the other thing is however you generate the electricity. Yeah, electricity is a fundamental thing going to change. How you generate that electricity... Uh, you can we can rely on any magical type of energy generation we like tidal fusion people on bicycles however we want to generate that energy we can do it but fundamentally it's getting pumped into the same wires no matter what so you can all that technology can develop uh, wonderfully happy days um uh yeah so uh richard smith asks how much work will need to be done on the national grid and power supply power supply being a key point to support nationwide electrification will this produce any kind of limiting factor on such a program yeah i think it will a, a key point that does get forgotten in, in by a lot of people in all of this is not just the oil kit but the power supply you need to upgrade the power supply massively 
to enable all the new trains to run. Um, even on existing electrified uh, sections, not just the future stuff where you need to put the power supply in. Frustratingly, power supply upgrade on the East Coast mainline has been de-scoped to just satisfy the, the needs of, of the current foreseeable timetable with with only like a marginal increase in capital cost. We could have foreseen it to the mid middle of the century. Um, stupid decisions are always being made based on short-sightedness, aren't they? Capital, reduce capital cost at all costs. Uh, no, don't do that. Think about the future. Look at whole life costs, please, for goodness sake. Money is free, particularly for capital expenditure. So here's hydrogen trains talking about the technology. So we, we don't need to look in great detail at technology. This, this is a, a real interesting breakdown in the way that technologies can advance. So this is looking at hydrogen. The, the key technology is really hydrogen compression. And that is there are some challenges about how that might work. So that's broken down a bit. Um, looking at improvements in battery range, making a difference to, to the tech, you know, pointing out that even if there are improvements in battery range, it's unlikely to make any particular difference to the conclusions of the, the TDNS. Um, the, yeah, these are the project, projections. The, the UK's advanced propulsion centre is kind of providing, broadly looking at um, the, the, the car industry and their transition to net zero and looking at technologies of batteries and their projections about the improvements that we might see in, in, in density and, in, and therefore in range. And they're pretty menial, in honesty. Yes, great for cars. As I often say, you know, electric cars are the future for cars, but ca cars are not the future travel. Um, so, yeah, so it's some really valid points pointed out there. And then I think generally you've got technology. We've already got technologies actually making electrification better. You know, Gary, we talked about those the last time we were on the last time Gary was actually on the episode. We talked about, um, you know, new kind of uh, insulating material paint that you can put on the underside of bridge. We talked about um, surge arresters. We talked about some of these technologies that allow you to, um, you know, reassessment of, of OLE gradient rules. There is another good example. You know, we better modeling is allowing us to be better, to, to be more efficient, more clever with the way that we do electrification. This is operating, operate, offering huge opportunities. Um, here we are. So there's some nice. There's all sorts of nice snazzy stuff here. Um, oh, reducing cost of new feeder stations because they don't require a net connection to high volt. Look at this. So I didn't even know about that. That's quite. So that's on the power supply side. So there's technology. You know, great leaps and bounds going on there. Um, uh, there we are. Uh, riding Sunbeams project showing that there are potentials for solar panels um, directly connected to the to, to the electrification system. Yeah, riding a kind of. Um, uh, Lee and the, the good work being done there. I think I appeared on a radio thing talking about this and so the fact that the idea there was there was a discussion about oh, can you have solar powered trains and that'll be wonderful. And I was like, well, no, you don't stick your solar power panels on the train. That's stupid. What you do is you stick your solar panels onto the next to the railway or just broadly as part of the grid mix. But but there but that's how you, you know solar is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Um, it's a good way to generate electricity. Uh, pump it into the grid, but also, you know, if you're shoving a load of, uh, of solar panels on the roof of stations or whatever, or you develop glass, see-through glass that is also, I mean, it's difficult because part of it has to be absorbed. But anyway, whatever snazzy solar panel technology you invent, shoving it around on the railway estate is a good way to pump more electricity into the into the industry as well. I'm just going to point out this guy's plastic bag here. Is that like a Tesco's or a Sainsbury's bag there? Uh, nice work. I like that. I hope, I, I hope I hope that there's just some lunch in there. That'd be really good. Anyway. Conclusions, right? This is the exciting bit. There are um, eight, wait a minute, eight conclusions, all of which are very, very excellent and good. And we're going to talk about each one in turn now, fairly rapidly. Quick fire, six point one. So, conclusion one: the use of electricity, either by electric trains that use it as it is generated, or by storing it on battery and hydrogen trains, is the only traction option for rail decarbonisation. Incontrovertible. Conclusion two, the contribution of biofuels to rail decarbonisation will be will at best be limited to a small transitional or residual role. 
So uh, too long, didn't read. Forget biofuels. Conclusion three, electric trains are a unique technology in that they can use electricity as it is generated to offer high-powered net-zero carbon transport. They are the only decarbonisation option for rail freight and for rail passenger services requiring high speed and high power for other than short distances. So rail decarbonisation requires, this is like the, the, the logic step, if you want rail decarbonisation, you need a large-scale electrification programme. That's the that's the, that's the incontrovertible truth of the matter. Uh, conclusion four, electric trains are future-proof since research and innovation cannot change the inherent features that give them greater power, range, efficiency, and lower operating costs than self-powered traction. Absolutely. Conclusion five, uh, UK Rail's greatest potential contribution to UK decarbonisation is accepting passenger and freight traffic from less carbon-friendly modes of transport. Modal shift. Um, attracting traffic from other modes requires high-powered traction, which for most passenger services and all freight services requires elect- conventional electrification. Conclusion six, cost-effective electrification is best delivered as part of a rolling program. Innovations are reducing the cost of electrification as well. This will further improve its already positive business case when delivered as current, at current electrification costs, as shown in the TDNS. Uh, the penultimate conclusion, conclusion seven, the UK rail decarbonisation strategy must consider how best to incentivise modifications of existing diesel traction to reduce carbon emissions pending electrification. Um, so that's uh, basically the, 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 the government are about to theoretically publish their decarbonisation strategy and they need to understand how to incentivise the modification of, of those existing diesel trains, however that is done. Uh, and then the final conclusion, which answers Philip Hayes' question from uh, from a few months back, the carbon benefits of electrification far outweigh the embodied carbon arising from the provision of an electrified railway. There you are. Easy. Uh, eight conclusions, all very neat and tidy. Richard Smith asks, does this report talk about Northern Ireland railways? Um, yes. Uh, the reason it says UK rail decarbonisation there is because it's, it is a UK strategy by government. That's the name of their strategy. But I have a sneaking suspicion that the UK government strategy will just look at... It's actually just looking at England and Wales because Scotland, it's entirely... Um, uh, de- transport is devolved in Scotland. It's it's kind of hybrid devolved in Wales and it's devolved in Northern Ireland. So actually, they just mean England, really. Um, but they are saying UK because to a lot of people currently in government, the UK and England are the same thing. Uh, right, there's a nice picture of a Class 385. That's a good train right there, even if they did slightly screw up the front windscreen, uh, windscreens. These, by the way, are um, incredibly uh, kind of reliable trains. They've got very high reliability. Right, so the appendices. I'm not going to go through these in, in detail and pick through. What I'm going to do is point out um, the, where you can go to find the information. So if you get this report, you can flick through and get, you know, screenshot these, you know, whatever it is, screen capture these graphs and use them on Twitter or whatever you happen to do. Um, so the first graph is the one that I often use, which shows the different uh, emissions, the different sectors and their CO2 emissions in, for the UK. You can see that um, you've got... Uh, what is this? This is annual emissions. Actually, you can see that there's there's one there which is industry. Is that the industry one that's seeming to drop? I'm not quite sure how they've measured that up, but basically, because my industry one comes out much lower when I use it. Anyway, um, I have to double check quite how they've accounted for that. In any case, the yellow one there is power, is energy generation, um, and you can see that's the one that's dropped by by a sig- substantial amount. Uh, so that's a nice, that's some nice stuff. There's some nice general. So this is the challenges and solutions UK decarbonisation. This is the kind of the broad brush stuff. Um, this is looking at uh, this this table. Here, the figure seven here is is detailing um, the the breakdown of electricity generation, how it gets how it gets created in terms of terawatt hours, and then sort of looking at hydrogen. So in 2018, it was all from reforming. Um, 
and then in 2050, the, the is envisioned that you have some electrolysis, but the majority will be from reforming with carbon capture and storage. Carbon capture and storage, by the way, a technology that's been defunded by the current government and remains a little bit of a of an FM technology. It does exist, but it's it, it, there's only one power station globally, I think, that's had proper carbon capture and storage uh, installation. Basically, it's it's one of those. There was a good report that was released. What was that written recently that I shared? Uh, Turnberg had shared it. She had shared it, and it was really worth a read. And talked about the fact that CCS is another one of these FM solutions that's not really got any major application. It, it's talked about a lot, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, so that's Appendix One. It's kind of the big picture. Appendix Two is talking about modal shift. These are sort of graphics that I've created, similar ones of these. Uh, so you might have seen the permanent rail engineering versions of these. These are a bit more nicely square, actually. Fair play. So this is talking about 2017. This is talking about the data when it when it was available in 2017. Um, uh, 2017 versus 2018. Uh, that might need to be 20. Anyway, uh, it's 2017-18, I think. And then it's looking at if you had modal shift. So, so, so from air only for, from road only four percent and from twenty percent from air, and sort of talking about what that uh, impact is on um, on reducing emissions and, and how that looks at um, sort of savings. But obviously, that requires a massive leap in capacity. Um, so, um, where are we? Um, Joseph, yeah, th Gary, thanks for your advice. Joseph, yeah. Uh, Joseph, do you think maglev has the potential to be added into the mix of mass transit providers? No. Um, so what's the next? So then we've got, uh, so this is talking about increase in rail passenger travel. Ah, this is quite a nice breakdown. I, I remember this. So this is talking about scenarios of the way that passenger traffic might change given different alterations in, um, you know, given different mode share shifts. So if you've got a 10% shift from car traffic, you've got an increase in rail passenger traffic of 84%. So nearly double. You know, and then if you include HGVs within that, you're looking at potentially doubling or more of of the need, of, of rail capacity requirements. That doesn't just evenly flatten, flatly work across the whole network. Obviously, that it works in greater intensity in some places and lesser in others. Um, that's potentially something to explore in great detail in the future. Maybe the Network 2050 work that's going on in the background of the Discord server might, might be able to look at some of that in more detail in the future. But anyway, broadly, you're looking at a doubling of rail capacity uh, needing to be achieved by the middle of this century. Yeah, relatively minor modal shift from road transport would result in nearly forty percent more rail passenger traffic. This is this is a point that needs to, is made constantly. So if you hear all the COVID haters and naysayers, it tell whack them over the head with this. For goodness sake, the idea that co that COVID is going to result in a long term reduction in rail travel is just for the birds. Uh, we did that in another episode, didn't we? Right, Appendix 3. This is just a comparison of traction modes. This is really good. I like this. So this is, look, is looking at different traction types, looking at um, the ratio of electric to diesel um, in terms of um, power so uh, and, and consumption. So so the ratio... So for a freight loco, you need... What's the way to... The, like, in terms of energy efficiency, I think this is looking at. So, um, yeah, a really nice little table detailing there. So you've got, you know, double... Kind of electric is twice uh, more than twice as, as efficient similar passenger loco multiple unit slightly reduced uh, high speed train per coach it's, it's just some very interesting sort of breakdowns there about high speed is actually quite an efficient way to move a diesel engine like diesel high speed trains are not not bad actually but that's that's kind of part of that for now in terms of efficiency obviously electric is is, is good and, and better for for all the reasons previously discussed Oh, serious performance benefits. Um, there's some some examples of maintenance per mile of a diesel vehicle is 60p, electric vehicle 40p, fuel per mile, diesel vehicle 47p, electric vehicle 26p, uh, lease per annum, 
Uh, actually, they're not that dissimilar. 110,000 for diesel and 90,000 for electric. Uh, track wear per mile, uh, again, they're not... I'm surprised at that. I'm interested to know... I'd be interested to look at... I think the TDNS came up with slightly different conclusions in terms of numbers there, but uh, yeah. No, Gary, any 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 steering going to go on? No, it's power, not efficiency. Thanks, Gary. No, it's power. So it's the amount of extra power these things have in the previous graph. Sorry. Freight. This is what, Gary, I'm so glad you're on, correcting all of my glaring errors. So sorry, That's those those numbers there are about um, power. So per coach, it's about power. So so basically, broadly across the, the bench, you've got uh, an electric vehicle. Uh, electric train has double the power of a, a diesel one. Thanks, Gary. That feels obvious now. I've said it out loud. Um, Viverail produces the only battery trains currently approved for passenger use in the UK. So there's a nice little sort of sample here. Um, so they give kind of 30 to 40% energy reserve capacity, uh, 130 kilowatt hours of useful energy, um, which means that they have a range of 60 to 80 kilometers. That's assumed and detailed in the TDNS study. So there's some, so it's a Viva Rail, a really interesting case study there explaining what they're capable of. Then hydrogen trains, uh, currently the only one that's capable of running is, is the, um, is the breeze units, these Alston breeze units, which we've had on, uh, I'll really annoy Alex Burrows now for saying this. Yeah. I mean, okay. We might see the, um, the Porterbrook slash BCRE, um, my one of my employers. So I'm going to get sacked now. Well, their their proposals. We might see those appearing, and I'm, I'm in the process of organising an interview to find out exactly where they're at. But they're further behind than Alstom are, frankly. Alstom and Evershall are further ahead. Um, Porterbrook are a little bit further behind, which is fine. You know, uh, they'll, they'll get there. The key thing holding them back is lack of government interest in in any of this. Despite the fact that oh, there's a good news report that I need to, I should have put in the news saying that hydrogen get, has been mentioned like hydrogen as a power source has been mentioned hundreds of times in um, uh, in Hansard uh, because there's a the, 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 to an extent the fossil fuel industry is pushing hydrogen as its new way of making you know of its new gas that it's going to make all its penny off even though it gets to charge more per per whatever it is per unit anyway that's another discussion for another day uh here's some stuff about loading gauge they talk about and here's here's uh, some of the david shearer specials so the, the discussion of efficiency so taking electricity from the grid the process of electrolysis 70 percent efficient the compression which is 91 percent efficient then into the fuel cell which is 60 percent it's a 60 percent efficient fuel cell then the converter and drive 89 percent which means that hydrogen is only 34 percent efficient as a system which is rubbish absolutely rubbish it has its place, as we've said, but it is not a hugely efficient way to move stuff around. Um, if that's the sacrifice we make for the rural lines, fine in the in the medium and, and maybe even the longer term, but not indefinitely. Um, anyway, there we go. So there's, there's some stuff and talk about the fact that the infrastructure is pretty expensive as well. Um, anyway, there's a picture of Hydroflex, uh, Porterbrook and, and Birmingham. Uh, they've, they've, they're testing it in a yeah anyway there's the hydroflex they're they running it back and forth it does run i mean they got there first in terms of the test case vehicle i'll just point out so they were moving it around but the uh the alston one i also been running the island for longer it was just about squishing it into uk loading gauge um so they're both ahead and behind in different aspects i, I don't have a favorite favorite of either of them you know i'm just just to point this out before i get shouted at um uh gary calls this part of the chat reality doesn't suit our needs let's invent fuels Yes, uh, this is indeed the um, the part of the discussion. Yes, all of these alternative potential things. So uh, Appendix 4 is, is a really good one because it shows how rubbish the UK is in terms of its... Um, the the carbon intensity of our network we think we're we lord it over the americans so much but we have a look at our um co2 equivalent grams per passenger kilometer and um we are 
second only to the US when it comes to these big emitting companies, these uh, companies, countries. Um, I'd be interested to look at some of the other European countries, but they, they are so heavily electrified compared to us that their their passenger kilometer CO two emissions are much much lower. Um, and you have a look at the, then you have a look at the, the the reason for that is this next figure is the breakdown of the way that stuff moves around. So yellow is bad. That's the that's the diesel and um, electric is the bluey purpley color. So you can see the USA just all diesel. There's and a huge amount of the light yellow is freight, and then a tiny little fraction of passenger. It's all diesel. But given that, given that, look at us. We are still a huge amount of passenger is uh, passengers are moved around by diesel, and then obviously a substant. We've got less of a an overall share of freight, which is why that light color is so small. But that's still that's all pretty much all freight is diesel haulage. And we've got a good chunk of passenger being hauled by electric, but it's over. It's it's squashed. The the overall picture is ruined by the amount of diesel that we still run really nice kind of picture to end on i think there uh 20 minutes overrun um gareth williams what about wind power trains uh what surely did not be on the realms of man to affix sails onto locos i think there was someone who who did have one of those like squeaky things and they tried to attach a sail to it i mean obviously it's a ridiculous suggestion uh joseph harrison sincere question uh trains can now reach 250 miles an hour is that the limit or is there potential to get faster oh what that's that's kind of a random query uh i'd recommend googling the the 474 kilometer an hour um conventional steel wheel steel rail world record holding attempt um so yeah we can nearly get to 500 kilometers an hour with um modern trains so yeah speed isn't isn't so much of an issue it's the relevance that the need for that speed that becomes a bigger question anyway right enough of that let's go back to our slides and this uh, oh, uh no the slides let's go back to our slides um and go back to this this point here i'm going to get rid of my face you don't need to see my face this is the kind of the concluding remarks I have, um, I basically have for um, for this, which is which is my we got sent these out to, to sort of send. Yes, yes, I am quoting myself here. Don't laugh. The point is, it's kind of my neat thing that I moan, I kind of go on and on about, and I want it to stick eventually. Which is that Britain's rail capacity needs to double by the middle of this century, and without a widespread rolling program of electrification, this increase simply is not possible. Um, we were all sent out these cards by Rail Industry Association to to kind of. Um, uh, kind of push the the push the message, make the report widely widely known. I'm always naughty. I change the picture from an IET to a freight train because you know freight trains don't get their representation. I also downloaded the correct font to make sure this thing in the top corner appears properly. Um, big shout out to Max Sugarman. I'm doing 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 the work doing the work for you. Um, five seventy four, not four seventy four. Oh yeah, it's five seventy four. It's nearly six hundred kilometers an hour. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> you make me feel like I speak absolute nonsense the whole time. Um. Uh, anyway, right. So, oh, Matt Reed, you ask the key question. You ask the key question. Matt Reed asks: Will any action be taken due to this report? Will it be taken seriously? Oh, one would like to think so, but I ain't holding my breath. I really am not holding my breath. Um. Michael C. asks, can the doubling of capacity be achieved purely with HS2, HS3 and electrification or are other uh, projects needed as well? No, no, no. HS2, HS3, high-speed rail plus electrification are just part of the picture. You need a lot of local um, local passenger upgrades. You need more better bus services to feed into rail. You need better 
urban transport to feed into rail. There are a lot. You need lots of regional railway projects. You need all the upgrades to the East Coast Main Line. Like, but not. But the, when I'm talking about upgrades, I mean you know signalling projects, all these sort of things. There's a lot that the existing railway needs to still have done to it to enable that to happen. It's not just the case of HS2. There's a lot of work still need to be done on the network. You know, track renewals, bridge replacements, all these things on a major scale need to still happen. Anyway, right, that's enough of that. That's the conclusion. Rail capacity needs to by the middle of the century. You need a rural implementation to achieve that. Full stop. I said that very quickly, but I think you get the point. Oh. So, um, thanks for listening, if you did so in podcast form. Uh, available on all good podcasting platforms. I don't know why I say this to people. Either you know this already and you're watching it, um, and so you, you're watching it, so you don't need to listen to it in podcast form. Or you're listening to this already, and you're hearing me say this, which means you found it already. So, is it daft that I talk about this? I don't know. I, I like this slide because it's got many colours and it's a useful kind of windbreak between the the body and then the the outro section. What else? Oh, the Patreon stuff. Patreon.com/slash/GarethDennis is where you can support me to keep doing this stuff. Um, as we're getting closer, further away from lockdowns and um, or, or closer to the end of lockdowns, and summer is raining. Um, you know, I have less evening time, so I, 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 this is my own time that I take to set these things up, and so um, the Patreon stuff allows me to, to kind of justify my time on that. All the chat happens on the Discord. If you want to get involved in stuff, such as, for example, the Network Rail, Network Rail, Network 2050 project, you're, you're now employees of Permanent Rail Engineering, slash volunteers, sort of indentured servitude type affair. Um, thanks to all of you who are volunteering and getting involved in that. Um, it's really good. Lots of nice pro bono stuff. L, I don't need new kit. Uh, I've got all the kit, right? Surely. Uh, and also PayPal if you just want to go for like uh, small money chucking that if you don't want to con- kind of uh, commit to anything long term. Oh, uh, very brief thing. So uh, I never normally plug this, but this week we're, we're, we've reached an interesting milestone in the Archipelago series. Also, it's happening on Thursday, not Friday, like it normally does. Uh, it's reduced down to one a week because, you know, sunny outside and exercise need reasons. Um, but we've we finally reached the point of, of, of grouping on our on our archipelago. So if you're interested in what in the hell, what in the hell I'm talking about, then join this next uh, tomorrow night. Should be interesting. Uh, next week. Next week. Um... <laughs> what is this project Lewis Cott is asking about? Go into the Discord and ask about it. You'll find it. Episode 61. We're going to be talking about buses. Uh, it's another page turn. Uh, some people... No, everyone I talk to likes these, but some I've never seen anyone say they don't like the page turns. There's just lots of interesting reports out there, and it's fun to kind of go through them and sort of see how they fit into the bigger picture. And I really want to go through this one. We are going to get bus experts on in the future, but I figured to allow me to kind of free, talk freely about this one... Um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll go through this report um, myself. Uh, it was out quite a while ago, and it's it's interesting. It's an interesting thing. I, I have had a detailed read through it now, actually, so it won't be the first time I've looked through it when I'm with you um, all. But it's uh, it's good actually. There's lots of good stuff in there. This I, I was fine. I wanted to I wanted to get angry about it, but didn't because it is actually a good document. Now, I'm sure there are things that could be better in it, and others might come in the chat and describe it. But it's a good document. I want to go through it and talk about it. So buses, Lewis Cott, uh, sorry, Lewis Cott, Romy Adcrat, yes, you did used to drive these. Um, right. <sighs> so, um, oh, uh, oh. also remember, go vote tomorrow. That's like a key thing. Go vote, everyone. Absolutely go vote, everyone. Uh, let's let's go big face. So there are some questions. Hello, everyone. It's, it's oh, I'm, I'm slightly less pink. The lights seem to be balancing up quite nicely for once. Uh, David Shepard is repeating the question. Is it better to use solar power early or power stations so power power oily or or power stations absolutely indifferent um it's from an efficiency perspective i think having a grid um just putting 
renewable power into the national grid is the right thing to do, and then that in turn powers the OLE. Um, Matt Reed um, asks if I'm going to talk about uh, the misguided busway in Cambridge uh, next week. I don't know if I will actually, because it we'll see. It might get talked about tangentially, but broadly, um, uh, broadly. Uh, I think we'll be talking about kind of the the, the organisation of buses, the, owner, the, the ownership, or, or at least the, the operating model uh, for those. Uh, El, I've got Wacom. It's here. Look, Wacom. There is the Wacom, everyone. Wacom. Feel free to like send me a refund for this one since I'm now plugging it. Look, there's the, the stick. To, ooh, it's nice. It's a nice nice unit. Anyway, right. Enough of that. So, oh, um. I've witted on for half an hour longer than I should have because it's supposed to be an hourly thing. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with it. I think that's all the questions um, covered off. Um, only really remains for me to sort of say, uh, to sort of wave inanely at you all. As I say, cheerio. Cheerio, everyone. I hope that's been interesting. Thanks for correcting all my errors, Gary. Cheerio. Cheerio.